All right. Well, go ahead and open your Bibles to First Peter, and we are going to be in chapter four tonight. So we're moving. All right. I know that you guys had lost faith when we got stuck in a couple passages, but we're moving through, and I hope to finish it maybe at the beginning of the fall semester. As you open up to First Peter chapter four, we're going to look at the first six verses of that chapter. And if you wanted to put a title to this evening's message, it would be Sivi Pakem Parabellum. Sivi Pakem Parabellum. It's a Latin phrase. That means if you want peace, prepare for war. Two days ago, in 1805, so May 26, 1805, Napoleon Bonaparte was crowned the king of Italy. And he had his empire for about 10 years. It oversaw about 44 million people in his time. And uh, he's famous for his extension, the expansion of the French empire. And you guys know how it ended, unfortunately, or fortunately for the Russians. He went to Russia with 600,000, came back with 100,000. So that was the end of his empire. But here's what his motto, 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 forgive my foreign status, motto of his military career was, Sivis Pakem Parabellum. If you want peace, prepare for war. This phrase has become popular in various countries' military expeditions. In fact, Reagan used it when he was strategizing how to uh, kind of push back the Russians and the Soviets in the 80s. He would say, peace through strength peace through strength. The phrase became popular in the fourth century from the first Christian author who wrote about Roman military expeditions. And he analyzed the Roman military and specifically the fall of the Roman Empire. And he said that the quality of the army deteriorated. The soldiers became lazy. They became weak. They became idle and they stopped preparing for war. They stopped wearing their protective armor. They became vulnerable to the degree that sometimes during battle, they would flee. Well, because he was the first Christian Roman to write about the military affairs in the Roman Empire, he became very famous. His work became known as the military Bible of Europe. Even George Washington had a copy of this book in his military expeditions in this country. Civis Pacem. Parabellum. Since then, it's become popularized in movies. Lots of movies have used that phrase. John Wick 3, there's even the Metallica song after it. Tom Clancy has included it in some of his books. It was on some t-shirts in the worldwide world wrestling entertainment group. Star Trek has used it. The Punisher, The Simpsons even used it in their cartoon. Supergirl, the TV series used it. In the January storming of the Capitol in Wisconsin, one of the Republican parties, local Republican parties, used that exact phrase as their slogan for what happened in January. Military groups use it around the world. In fact, this year, the United States Naval Academy, their slogan for this year is this phrase. The Royal Navy of England, Paul Twiss's, you know, experience, this is their slogan. And you can go down from Norway to South Africa, to Poland, to Switzerland, to multiple various brigades in the American military. 
they use this phrase, civis pacem parabellum. If you want peace, prepare for war. But even though this Roman author who was a Christian is the first one where we have a record of it, it most likely originated from Plato and then his famous student, Aristotle. You see, in the 4th and 5th century BC, Plato was a philosopher. And he said this, each citizen must be ready himself for protecting his state by preparing for war in peacetime and not wait until the war breaks out. Without this preparedness, a good life is impossible. Then Aristotle developed this idea by linking, if you want peace, prepare for war with the good life as follows. War must be subordinated to the end for which the state exists. And that is the quest for the good life. War is no more than a means to the attainment of peace. Plato and Aristotle and their thinking on this topic has impacted Western civilization. Many go back to their works to talk about the affairs during war. What is appropriate and inappropriate warfare? Well, they connected this phrase with the good life in their own understanding of the good life, which was peace and leisure. The Apostle Peter picks up this exact language in our passage this evening. In fact, in verse 1, right in the middle of the verse, it says, arm yourselves. That's the word. Prepare for war. Arm yourselves, he says. And as we've been talking about since the beginning of the study, the good life is the theme of this book. First Peter can be grouped underneath that banner. Everything in this book can be filtered through that understanding that Peter promises to the Christian the good life on this side of the Garden of Eden. Well, as we look at this first few verses of chapter 4, I'd like to read them for us as we understand what does it mean when Peter says prepare for war. He writes the following, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. You could say has found peace from sin. So as to live in the rest of the time in the flesh, not or no longer for the lust of man, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. Having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. They malign you. But they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. That though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Tonight's paragraph closes the second main section in 1 Peter. We've talked about dividing the book of 1 Peter into three primary sections. The first one is is in chapter 1, verse 1, and goes all the way to chapter 2, verse 10. And the focus of that section is the good life in Christ. In other words, our understanding of the good life is rooted in Christ. Everything has to be connected to Jesus Christ. Everything flows through Jesus Christ. Our hope for eternal life, our redemption, our forgiveness of sins, 
even our battle with sin towards the middle of chapter one, all that flows from our relationship with Jesus Christ. But then in chapter two, verse 11, Peter begins the second main section and we called it the good life in the community. We're not just living the Christian life in our bedrooms, in our homes. We're living the Christian life in this world. And so Peter says, you can enjoy the good life in the secular community that's around you. And that began in chapter two, verse 11. And look at the beginning of this second section. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to what? Abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against your soul. The opening words of this section is you need to fight sin that's fighting you. The closing words of this section in our passage for this evening, prepare for war, but then he develops it. What does that mean? No longer living your life in the flesh for the lusts of man. And then verses three through four explain the details of that. In other words, the opening and the closing words of Peter to this main second main section is that you as a Christian, as you live your life in the secular community, you are to fight sin in your life. You're to fight your lusts. You're to live a godly life. And that is how the people around you viewing your life will be attracted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because back in chapter two, verse 12, he says, keep your behavior excellent. Why? Because even though they slander you, because of your good deeds, as they see them, they will glorify God in the day of visitation. That is the statement of salvation. They will come to an understanding of Christ and they will glorify him because of your faithfulness, because of your life. Well, this evening, as we look at this conclusion, the concluding paragraph to this second section, Peter now says, remember, prepare for war. Arm yourself, he says. And he says, since Christ has suffered, we talked about that last week, right? Those were verses 18 through 22 of the previous chapter. Everything was about Christ and what his suffering accomplished on our behalf. But now he says emphatically, and you, right in the middle of the verse, the first verse, and you arm yourselves also with the same purpose, with the same literally mindset with the same intent, with the same thought. It comes from the word for mind, that word. You remember 1 Corinthians 2.16, we have the mind of Christ and therefore we're able to understand scripture. In Philippians 2.5, Paul says, we are to have the mind of humility as was in Christ. And Peter here says now, have the same mindset that Jesus had in regard to suffering. Arm yourself. It's a command. It's an urgent command. And it's a command, what's in the original, in the Greek, it means it's put in the middle voice, which means this. You are the one fulfilling the command and you're doing it to your own benefit. So as you arm yourself, you're the one who's the agent of that action, but you're doing this because it ultimately benefits you. So why should we arm ourselves with the thinking towards suffering? Well, when you call somebody into the military service, you kind of want to make sure that there's a motivation, there's an incentive, right? There's some kind of reward. The war, the battle will be fierce. Sacrifice will be expected. So there should be some kind of a motivation for it. That's what I want to talk about this evening. We are to prepare for war, specifically prepare for suffering in this world. And here are three motivations for that. First one, because ultimately 
Suffering leads to redemption from sin. It leads to redemption from sin, and that's verses one through four. Now, what's the connection between suffering and sinlessness? Right at the end of verse one, he says, the one who suffered has ceased from sin. In other words, has overcome sin, has been redeemed from sin, has been rescued from sin. I think there are two components to this statement. First of all, redemption from sin through death. Redemption from sin through death. You see, right before this paragraph, as we looked at at it last week, Jesus is the example of suffering and ultimately successfully passing through this world, suffering and accomplishing redemption for us. But go to John chapter 15. And if you don't have a Bible, it's on the screen for your benefit. John 15, and we'll look at verse 18 and a few verses after that. 15, 18. This is uh, Jesus speaking to his disciples in the upper room. It's right before the crucifixion. And he says this. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. Or they would not have been aware of sin, the fact that they're sinners. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father also. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Then look at, Verse, chapter 16, verse 1. These things I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from defection, stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they do not know the Father or me. Jesus' words to his disciples in anticipation of his departure, says you will be persecuted. You'll be persecuted because of me, because I have exposed their sin. And the result of that is hatred toward the one whose sin has been exposed by Jesus Christ and his messengers. You look at Colossians chapter one, verse 24, explains why the world hates us. Paul says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake and in my flesh. I do share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So Paul is saying, in my body, I'm being persecuted. I'm experiencing opposition, hostility from unbelievers. Why? Because I'm filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What does that mean? Christ suffered enough. You can't add to it for salvific purposes. What that means is that the people in the world who hate Christ, who hate Christ can't get to him. And so they get to the people that are closest in their association with Christ, the believers. And so their rage and their opposition and their hostility is taken out upon the Christians. That's what Colossians 124 means. 
the promise of the, to those who will stand up and say, I'm a Christian, I associate with Christ, whether it's in the water of baptism or through membership or through faithful evangelism on the streets in our community, the response will be hostility. In our passage in 1 Peter 3, Peter says they malign you. That's the response of the people who interacted with the Christians to whom Peter wrote. But remember, Jesus said this repeatedly back in his ministry, Luke 9, 23. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who will save it. For what is a man, what, what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, the glory of the father and of the holy angels. From the very beginning, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you need to be willing to die for me. Pick up your cross. And it wasn't a metaphoric statement. It was a literal statement. Jesus would ultimately carry his own cross to Golgotha along with the other criminals next to him. The person who would be crucified always carried his own cross to signify the penalty for his crime. But as we talk about this following that's affiliated with suffering, that's affiliated with faithfulness, I can't help but think back to John 21. The famous passage in John 21 is Jesus restoring Peter back into ministry after his own betrayal. Three times in John 18, he says, I don't know the man. And that was in the context of being identified with Christ as his disciple. But in chapter 13, verse 37, Peter swore to Jesus, I will die for you. And when the moment came to stand up and associate with Christ publicly, he fell. He buckled. He didn't have courage. But then Jesus restores him in John 21. And listen to what he says in verse 18 after that. Truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he said this, he said to Peter, follow me. Jesus prophesied to Peter his upcoming crucifixion. According to church history, Peter was crucified. He stretched out his hands. And Jesus said, knowing that that's ahead of you, I expect you to follow me. And Peter did follow him all the way to his own crucifixion. So going back to our passage. Arm yourself with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. There is a truth in that death is the, is the cessation of sin. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Yes, when we die, we have stopped sinning. There is that first component, this first element to this phrase, to this purpose, of uh, this point of redemption from sin, that our final and ultimate redemption from sin happens through death. And you can find so many verses about that, especially in Pauline writings. But there's a second component. Until that moment, 
Until the moment of death, how do we cease from sin? How are we redeemed, rescued? How do we overcome sin? Well, we do so through submission. So we do it through suffering, which ultimately leads to death, and we do it through submission, and that's in verse two. So look at listen to this. He has sit from sin, he has ceased from sin, so as to. That means, in other words, I'm defining for you what I mean. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of man, but for the will of God. In other words, the second element of ceasing from sin, redemption from sin, is to actually fight sin. Is to actually battle with sin, as you remember from chapter 2, verse 11. Abstain from flesh lusts because they wage war against you. But here's the connection between all this. When a Christian commits to obeying God to the point of suffering, even unto death, he or she will do the lesser. They will fight sin. That's their commitment. I will fulfill the will of God in my life to the point of dying for my Savior. But until that point, we're talking about fighting sin. That's also an expectation. That is the will of God. First Thessalonians 4, your sanctification. It's God's will. So in other words, that's the idea. In Acts chapter 5, verse 29 we see that the disciples, specifically Peter and John, made a commitment to obey God, not men. Peter and the apostles said, we must obey God rather than men. And that, was, that statement followed previous harassment, threats, and an arrest. And you know, if you know the book of Acts, what follows after chapter 5. Just so you know, every single chapter in the book of Acts has elements of persecution. Every single chapter except for two. Chapter 10, because that's a private conversation between Peter and Cornelius in a private room, the whole thing. And chapter 15, that's a private conversation between all the apostles in regards to what do we do with the Old Testament law as Christians. So the chapters in Acts that have to do with faithful witnessing, the word of God moving to different communities, there's always an element of persecution. So the disciples make a pact Make a commitment, rather. We must obey God rather than man. So bring it on. Whatever follows, we're ready to obey God. In other words, we're going to be willing to die for him. Certainly, we'll be willing to fight our sins for him. We're not going to live according to the flesh, according to the lusts of man, First Peter 4, 2. Now, if you remember in chapter 1, verse 14, Peter said, as obedient children, don't be conformed to your former lusts that you performed in ignorance. There's obedience and there's fighting the flesh. In chapter 2, verse 11, we already read it. Abstain from fleshly lusts. And now he says, if you're going to suffer for the name of Christ, if you're going to cease from sin, don't live the rest of your life for the lusts of men. Paul makes it really helpfully clear. Romans 6, 21. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification 
and the outcome, eternal life. It's the same exact idea that we find in our passage. You used to be immersed in sin, but what benefit did you derive from it? You were ashamed of it. That's your former life. You did that in ignorance, according to 1 Peter chapter 2. Chapter 1, rather, verse 14. But then Paul says, the result of you fighting sin is sanctification and the final outcome, eternal life. Peter takes us there as well at the very end in verse 6 when he says, you will be resurrected. Again, you'll be resurrected with Christ. So the, the process is the same in Paul's mind and in Peter's mind. You fight sin and the final outcome is eternal life. It is resurrection. Peter says this extremely emphatically in verse two. He starts the verse by saying in the original language, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God, your remaining time living in the flesh. It makes no sense in the English, but that's the literal translation. And the emphasis falls on no longer. In other words, enough is enough. Enough sinning. You want to live the good life in the secular community? Stop sinning. No longer. Sufficient, adequate, enough is enough. Stop pursuing your lusts in verse 2. That's his message. Enough time has passed. It's presented in the perfect, which means it's in the past. It's way past there. That's your old life that you have worked out. Again, the same place way back there. You used to fulfill your lusts. The will of pagans, the will of the Gentiles, having been immersed again, way in the past, you used to be immersed in sensuality. That's what he's saying. When you look at your life as a Christian today, you see the past and you see the present and you see the future. From the present point of view, all that stuff, the pre-Christian you is in the past. Be done with it. Don't allow those things to control you. Don't allow those things to seduce you. Do not give in to those things. You used to be a slave of them. Now you're done. And so in verse three, he says this, the time has already passed. It's sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality. The the imagery there is you were on a journey. You were a sojourner, you're a traveler. And so you went from sin to sin to sin. Some people today go to Vegas specifically for the purpose of sinning. Some people go to Amsterdam for the purpose of the red light district. You may know people like that. They'll spend money, they'll travel in order to accomplish sin. That's the imagery in verse 3. You used to pursue travel in order to fulfill sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. You went from one sin to another sin to another sin to another sin. That's not you anymore. Now he says, it's done. You have so much life left in you as a Christian. I wasted on the past lusts. But it ultimately comes down to the same question as we make all those decisions. Verse two, no longer for the lusts of men, 
but for the will of God. No longer, verse 3, for the desire of the Gentiles. Desire and will of God versus Gentiles. Those two words are used in the New Testament to refer to will, decree, both of them. In other words, you have to make a decision. Am I going to fulfill God's will or the will of the pagans? The desire of the pagans, the decree of the pagans. That's ultimately the question all of us have to answer every single time we're faced with a temptation to sin. In John chapter 12, shortly before Jesus ends his public ministry, and then he meets privately in chapter 13 with his disciples. In verse 43, it says this, of the people who believed in Jesus, but they were not willing to confess him as the Messiah because they were afraid of the consequences. The consequences of being expelled from the synagogue, which was the center of life. Everything happened in the synagogue from the court system to the educational system, to the worship, to the educate, to the uh, weddings, everything happened in the synagogue. If you were expelled, you were completely cut out of the social life in Israel. So people were unwilling to give that up. And so they refused to confess Jesus as Messiah publicly. Why? Verse 43. For they loved the approval of man rather than the approval of God. I think that's the simplest way to think about our decisions. When you refuse to be faithful for Christ, privately in your bedroom in regards to sin or not sin, publicly in an opportunity to confess Christ to somebody, it's ultimately rooted in this decision. You love the approval of men more than the approval of God. So I think as we reflect on our good life in Christ, our good life in the community, the question is who are you going to prefer? The will of God or the will of man? The glory of God or the glory of man? I remember working in, uh, in business for a number of years and regularly friends enticing me to just go get drunk and things like that. Constantly, even friends who are super close to me, who've come to this church and still, even after being here, being in a Bible study, not saved, they still have this weird infatuation trying to pull me into sin with them. If you work in a secular environment, I'm sure you've stumbled upon those kind of situations where your friends want to spend time with you and so they pull you into what they love, what they enjoy, that is sin. And Peter says, enough is enough. Don't fall back to those patterns of sin. Don't return to your old way of life. And so in verse three, he says, what are we talking about? Sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Really, you could summarize this with, it's a list of excess, excessive dissipation. That's all it is. It's shameless conduct in sensuality and debauchery. The lust focus on your cravings and vicious desires that you can't control. Drunkenness is literally to be overflowing with wine. You're so filled with wine, just kind of coming out. That's the picture there. You're completely consumed with getting drunk all the time. Carousing. It's even worse. It's orgies. That's the idea there. It's full-on debauchery. Drinking parties. Excessive drinking parties. 
and then abominable idolatries. It's worshiping idols, which is always in the ancient world paired with immorality and full-on drunkenness. And when he says this, verse 4, they're surprised that you don't run with them into the same excess of dissipation. What he does there, Peter, is he uses a word that was a word that was a synonym for the god Bacchus. You've heard of Bacchanalian or Dionysius, same god. His other name was Asotia, Asotes. That's the word that he uses here. Because his worship was so consumed with immorality and drunkenness, the moment that you had full, um, you reached that state of completely losing control over your faculties. You can't think straight. You can't act straight. You can't talk straight. That is the moment that you became one with Dionysius, the God. That is the true experience of worship. Guess where that God was worshiped? Where these Christians were. They fled Rome. They went to Asia Minor. That's where this God was worshiped, primarily in Ephesus. So this was all around them. And they're being pulled into this experience of worshiping God. And he says, enough is enough. That's your old way of life. And he says, you used to do this. You pursued this. They're surprised that you are not running with them into the same excess. The idea there is to fully plunge into something. A full-on dive into a pool, completely covered, head first. They are diving into the sewer of sin, and they're surprised that you're not doing that with them. You used to, and they're just stunned. They're confused. And their response is what? Verse 4, they maligned you. I kind of see the picture of someone here. Someone is quite famous. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Do you see the progression? You're walking, then you slow down and you stop, you stand. And all of a sudden you take a break and you sit down with sinners. That's the progression. That's Peter's progression. You used to do this kind of here and there. But then you stop traveling and then you've kind of full on jumped in into the life of sin. You see, for Peter, in order to be a faithful witness in the community, you have to fight your lusts because ultimately you will overcome and sin will cease when you enter heaven, but also you can overcome sin here if you actually fulfill verses two through four. Well, the question for all of us is this. We fight sin. I think we all do. We hate sin. We are guilty of the sin that we commit and we feel guilty. And sometimes we don't want to see anybody nor come to church because of the guilt of sin. But the question is this from Hebrews chapter 12, verse three. Consider him, in reference to Jesus, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. We're talking about suffering once again. And he did this so that you would not grow weary and lose heart. In what? In running the Christian race. That's chapter 11. Keep moving forward. Running the Christian race. That's verses one and two of this chapter. Let us run the race in front of us. How far, how hard? Verse four, 
you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. That's how far. He suffered. He died so that we would not lose heart. Now compare your commitment to fighting sin in your life. Have you resisted sin to the point of shedding blood? And if the answer is no, and since you're all alive, the answer is no. Since I'm alive, the answer is no for me. Therefore, keep moving. Keep fighting. To the point of shedding blood, Jesus resisted sin and he was crucified. That's the idea there. But there's another motivation to resist sin. And that's in verse five. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Retribution on the scoffer. They malign you, verse four. They scoff, they blaspheme. The literal word is blaspheme. Jesus was blasphemed on six different occasions in the gospels. Stephen was blasphemed in Acts six. Paul was blasphemed in Acts 13 and Acts 18. Those are your examples of blasphemy against believers or Christ. You are being blasphemed because you refuse to sin. Why? Because what we're preaching, what we're living out is foolishness. You remember 1 Corinthians 1, 19, 1, 18, 19, those verses. The word of the cross is foolishness to the Gentiles. To the degree that they mocked it in the first century and they keep mocking it. The earliest Christian depiction of the crucifixion comes from about AD 200. There should be an image on the screen. It's called the Alexamenos Graffito. It's the earliest pictorial depiction of Jesus' crucifixion. It's found in Rome, right in the heart of Rome on Palatine Hill. Palatine Hill was where the emperor's palace was, Palazzo. That's why it's called Palatine Hill. And in that area on Palatine Hill, there was a school for young men who were being trained to become servants in the palace. In one of those rooms, classrooms, they found this graffiti. And the graffiti says, Alexomenos worships his God. And it's a man with a donkey's head on the cross and another man worshiping him. This was a school for young men. You're talking about maybe eight to 15 years old. In the room next to it, it says, Alexomenos, the faithful. Why was he being mocked? Because as a teenager, while preparing to serve the emperor, he was so faithful to Christ that the people around him knew it. And they began to mock him and draw these graffiti of him. You guys, it's never too early to start to be faithful to Christ. We're talking about a young teenage boy. And to this day, it survives. I've seen it, the original, with my own eyes in Rome. You should see it if you ever go there. Because it speaks of our history, of the Christian history, that the people in AD 200 or so, they were mocked for associating themselves with Christ. You guys, the irony of this image couldn't be more appropriate for our message tonight. If you associate with Christ, you will be maligned no matter what age you are. That's the point of our passage. That's the point of the second point. But nevertheless, be faithful. Paul says, all those who desire to live godly will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3.12. 
Be faithful. Why? Because of verse 5. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. If you choose to just kind of let it go and just immerse your life in sin and sensuality and lust and everything else, what you're saying to the people who know you is that, yes, I profess to be a Christian, but I choose not to obey the will of God. I choose to obey the will of man. And I prefer the glory of man over the glory of God. Well, that gives us reason to doubt your salvation if you're pursuing unbridled sin. And guess what? If that's you, then verse 5 is writing about you. There's judgment coming for you. And Peter says they will give an account. Do you remember the last time he said that? Back in chapter 3, in verse 15, when we talked about this a couple weeks ago, it says, always be ready to give an account to everyone who asks for your hope that's within you. So we as Christians are ready to give an account to everybody around us for the hope of the gospel that's within us. And then he says, now the unbeliever will also give an account and they will give an account to God for their lusts and their sinful lives. And it says this, he, Jesus is ready. Back in chapter one, verse five, Peter used the same word, the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. It's there. The salvation is almost there. It's almost finalized. And then you go to chapter three, verse 15, always being ready. So we're always ready to give an account. And now it says, Jesus is ready. The judge is at the door, James five. He's ready to judge. In chapter three, verse 22, we saw that he is in heaven at the right hand of God and everything has been subjected to him. We know that he's in charge and he's the judge. Just look at the screen with all these verses of Jesus being the judge. John chapter five, verse 22. This is what John writes. For not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son. Verse 27. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Acts chapter 10, verse 42. This is now Cornelius and Peter talking. He ordered us to preach to the people and Solomon to to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. And then Acts 17, verse 31. Because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And then finally, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. 2 Timothy 4, 1. I, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of the Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. That's the Christ we're talking about. He's the sole judge in the future. What kind of judgment are we talking about? Listen to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted. And to us as well, when the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That's vengeance 
unleashed. That's retribution. And what's the basis here? They afflicted you. And it's right for God to now afflict them. But they did that because they rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's one of the reasons why we say no to sin. It's because that kind of judgment awaits anybody who's pursuing a life of sin. Well, if you fast forward and look at chapter 22 of Revelation, the very, very end of the Bible, 22, some of the final verses. In verse 11, it says this, let the one who does wrong still do wrong. The one who's filthy still be filthy. And the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me. To render, that's the idea of judgment, to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. You guys, The upcoming judgment should be a deterrent for you as you make a decision between sin or worshiping God, serving Christ faithfully. It should be because of all the passages we just looked at. See, judgment should be the motivation for our faithfulness. But if you're here and you're hearing all this and you're saying, yes, I get it, but I'm not a Christian. I certainly haven't believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. I certainly haven't committed my life to him. I haven't recognized him as king and Lord and master and this future judge. The message for you is repent. All that means is turn away from that sin, that life of sin, that pursuit of sin. These verses are describing you and every single person before they were a Christian. And so now Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He promises rest from that life of sin, pursuing satisfaction in all the wrong places. And Jesus says, stop, enough is enough. I can give you rest and I can change your perspective on life and I can change your relationship with me and with God. And you're no longer headed for judgment. You're now headed for heaven. Heaven where you will worship God forever and ever. You see, suffering ultimately leads us to cessation of sin, separation from sin. But it also is an example in the retribution for that sin of those who mock. If you suffer, if you faithfully suffer for Christ, verse two is true of you. Verse one is true of you. You're living for the will of God and you are suffering for the will of God. And you've been maligned according to verse four for the will of God. But there's a third motivation to be willing to suffer, to prepare for war in this life and to suffer. The third motivation is the resurrection of the saint. Your future resurrection, which is verse six. For the gospel has this, for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. That though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. They are alive in the spirit, very end of verse six, according to God. Do you remember in chapter three, verse 18, he used similar language to describe Jesus. Jesus was put to death in the flesh. So 
in our passage, they were judged in the flesh as men. In other words, they were executed. Some kind of uh, decision was made against them. But then Christ was made alive in the spirit. Verse six, but you were made alive in the spirit according to the will of God, or you will be made alive rather. So there's a parallel here. Jesus died in the flesh, was resurrected by the spirit. You as a Christian, if you're faithful, you may die in the flesh, but you will be resurrected by the spirit of God to eternal life. We're talking about dead Christian martyrs here. Those who heard the gospel when they were still alive. The gospel for this purpose had been preached even to those who are dead. They're dead now. They used to be alive. They heard the gospel and they were alive. They believed it and then they were killed for it. But yes, they were killed in the flesh by men, but they are now alive. They are resurrected. Again, Peter's taken us to heaven. In verse 22, he took us to heaven to show us the throne and Jesus at the right hand of God having all authority. And now he says, let me take you back to heaven. And I'm going to show you, you. You are resurrected. You're alive in heaven. You have eternal life. And here's a preview of that moment in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. You as a believer have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. That's heaven, the new Jerusalem, living God, Myriads of angels, the church, the judge of all, the spirits of righteous made perfect. That's what we're talking about here. Those who died, but now they are eternal spirits and they are now perfect. They're sinless. They're mature. They've arrived. And to Jesus, the one who made it all happen. Because that's the future. That's our future. And that is reason enough to anticipate suffering and to be faithful in the middle of suffering because you will be resurrected. See, Peter says, let's talk about your life in the community. It begins and ends in the same place. Live godly. And if you do, you will suffer for it. Maybe even to the point of death but you'll be resurrected. But you'll also be fully free from sin. And the people that mock you will experience God's vengeance for you. And it starts by saying, prepare your mind. Arm yourself, prepare for war because peace follows a life of war, a life of hostility and difficulty. You know what the first words on Jesus' lips were to his disciples after the resurrection? Peace be with you. Says it twice, John 20. Peace be with you. Because he accomplished peace. And now he's given it to them. And then he says this. As the Father sent me, I now send you. There will be war but there's peace that you have. And you have that peace in the context of being commissioned by Jesus Christ to continue his mission. 
as the Father sent me, I now send you. Everything that we're talking about is in the context of faithfulness to the mission of Jesus Christ, even if it means death. He accomplished peace and he confers peace on those who faithfully suffer for him and follow him. I want to end with a prayer from the Valley of Vision, and it's called Crucifixion and Resurrection. It should be on the screen so you can follow along. It's a perfect conclusion to the second section in Peter. O Lord, I marvel that thou shouldst become incarnate, be crucified, dead, buried. The sepulcher calls forth my adoring wonder. For it is empty and thou art risen. The fourfold gospel attests it. The living witnesses prove it. My heart's experience knows it. Give me to die with thee that I may rise to new life. For I wish to be as dead and buried to sin, to selfishness, to the world, that I might not hear the voice of the charmer and might be delivered from his lusts. O Lord, there is much ill about me. Crucify it. Much flesh within me. Mortify it. Purge me from selfishness. The fear of man, the love of approbation, the shame of being thought old-fashioned, the desire to be cultivated or modern. modern. Let me reckon my old life dead because of crucifixion and never feed it as a living thing. Grant me to stand with my dying Savior, to be content to be rejected, to be willing to take up unpopular truths and to hold fast despised teachings until death. Help me to be resolute and Christ contained. Never let me wander from the path of obedience to thy will. Strengthen me for the battles ahead. Give me courage for all the trials and grace for all the joys. Help me to be a holy, happy person, free from every wrong desire, from everything contrary to thy mind. Grant me more and more of the resurrection life. May it rule me. May I walk in its power and be strengthened through its influence. That should be our prayer regularly, all-encompassing, from the first point to the last. That's how we faithfully walk in this community. We commit to waging war against the flesh. And we will be successful. Let's pray to that end. Lord God, what a promise. And to hear it from Peter, who actually lived it, who followed you, knowing that martyrdom was his future. He still followed. None of us know if we'll be martyrs. And if we did, we wonder if we would be faithful. So Peter's challenge stands and echoes and resounds in our minds. He did it. He lived what he preached. Lord God, help all of us to be faithful. Whatever may happen in this country or in the place that you may take us in the future, for our residents, help us to be faithful. 
Help us to be faithful in our personal lives now, to fight the flesh, to prefer your affirmation over man's affirmation, to fulfill your will, not man's will, to remember the judgment for sin that's coming, and to always be motivated by our future resurrection. Lord God, we need the Holy Spirit to fulfill all of this. Apart from him, we can do nothing. So sustain us, empower us, and help us to walk by the Spirit so that we would never fulfill the desires of the flesh. We pray this to the honor of your name. Amen.